You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 45 of the Common Descent Podcast. Hey, that number ends in a five. Hey. You know what this means. I think stuff's about to die. Yeah, there's going to be some death in this episode. It's a paleontology podcast. There's death in every episode. Everything we discuss is usually dead. But this episode will have the most death. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) We we, we could not fit more death in if we try. (laughs) As is our tradition, every episode that ends in a five is an extinction episode for completely arbitrary and coincidental reasons. (laughs) <laughs> and this time we are talking about the often cited worst mass extinction in Earth's history, the end Permian mass extinction, also known colorfully as the Great Dying. Yeah, paleontologists don't get to name things super awesome death metal names very often. This one, this one gets an <laughs> awesome death metal name. I think it sounds like the name for an uh, at least PG-13 rated Land Before Time movie. Yes, yes, The Great Dying. The Great Dying. <laughs> so the Permian extinction is the mass extinction that not only ended the Permian period, but the entire Paleozoic era. In this episode, we will talk about what it was like before the extinction, during the extinction, and after the extinction, and get a sense of what effect this had on the world as we know it. And we're doing this, of course, because it was requested. Woo! This particular topic, extinction topic, was requested by our patron, Cheryl. Thanks, Cheryl. Thank you. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, a couple of very quick announcements. As has become a pretty much every episode thing now, when we get new patrons of a certain level or higher, they get a shout out on the podcast. And we would like to welcome two of our newest patrons, Matthew and Mark. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the full. Welcome to the Baskin Coil. <laughs> I think we've only actually discussed those names on After Chat. Yes, up till this point, <laughs> but no one has given us any other suggestions yep. so, for what to call our listeners. And I really like Baskin Coil. Baskin Coil. Baskin Coil sounds like it's <laughs> it's a product line of like skincare. <laughs> it, it, you're making it less good, <laughs> it, but it's, it sounds like it sounds like it, it's a product name. <laughs> bed bath, bed basket coil. See, exactly. See, that's what I'm, that's what I, it, it sound. It has a nice ring to it. Anyway, <laughs> in other news, we have been releasing a ton of extra content recently. If you haven't checked them out yet, September was full of our spotlight series, which is now wrapped up. Take a listen, let us know if you liked it, follow our guests on Twitter and on on the internet because they're awesome people, and we'll see about doing more of that in the future if there's call for it. We released a silver screen science episode about The Meg, in which we talk about the science of that stupid movie. And coming up in October, and the first episode will be out by the time this episode is out, we are releasing a special speculative evolution series, which we have dubbed, Will has dubbed beautifully, (laughs) Spookulative Evolution. Yeah, we'll be doing that all this month. We're going to be talking monsters (laughs) and and evolution in monsters. It's, It's a lot of fun so far. 
We also very recently released a special episode about SciFest, which we attended in St. Louis. So check that out. It includes interviews with a handful of dinosaur paleontologists. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun to get to talk to them. So take a listen. In other news, the news. The news. As you all know, if you are listeners, avid listeners of the podcast, every episode we pick some news from the world of paleontology, evolution, our favorite sciences, and we kick off the episodes by discussing some of the recent research. Hey, Will. Hey, David. Start us off. Very well. So I'm going to start at the beginning. That's a good place to start. With the earliest animal that we've identified so far. And it's cool because it's actually a re-identification of one of the Ediacaran biota that we discussed. Oh, episode 31. Yes. So this bit of news identifies one of those mysterious organisms as a definite animal, which is cool. The research that we'll be discussing for this bit of news is from Bobrovsky et al. in Science. And the article we'll be linking to is uh, written by Ed Young in The Atlantic. And this research is recent, but it's not. They've actually used this technique once before, and we'll discuss that. But this is research that has looked at the fossils of one particular member of the Ediacaran biota to find traces that might indicate what branch of life it belonged to. Cool. So the Ediacaran biota, if any of you have forgotten was this weird, weird assemblage of organisms that crawled and sat along the ocean floor about 570 to 542 million years ago, just before the Cambrian and the Cambrian explosion. They're so bizarre, uh, these soft-bodied creatures, that it has actually been debated what branch of life, what kingdom they belong in, whether they're (laughs) animals, microbes, protists, or some other branch of life that did not make it. Something we don't have anymore. So it's been debated for quite a while because they don't persist, or at least most of them don't persist into the Cabrian, and they are unlike anything else we're used to seeing. Until, at least for one of them, now, Dickinsonia is one of the more famous of these fossil biota. It's very simple-shaped, Oval, overall shape with a central line and these ridges, these, you know, almost ribs that go out to the edge. So it looks kind of like a a fern frond, but smushed and flat. And yeah, yeah. It's this, some people have often called it like quilted. So it's just this little flat, semi disc shaped, oval shaped, weird thing that has shown things of like, it's one of the few biota that, uh, few of the Ediacaran things that show signs that it moved. So this has been a one that people have pointed to as maybe being an animal. There's been lots of research suggesting that this research was on actually the fossils themselves in what was left behind. So researchers looking at these fossils noticed a dark film on the surface that is very indicative of organic compounds. And so, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I can't, I thought of a joke, and no one else is gonna get it. <laughs> and then I was like, "Don't tell the joke," but I already thought of the joke. I was gonna say, "Imagine if you will, a dark film." A dark film. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Go back to it. <laughs> this dark film 
is the leftovers of organic compounds from the decomposing corpse of a Dickinsonia specimen. Now, the interesting thing about this is most protein, most most molecules don't last very long if they're large and complex. So DNA, proteins, things like that break down very quickly. But smaller, more stable molecules can last longer. So they started looking into this film to try to identify some of those more stable compounds. And what they decided to look into was steroids. Because steroids are made by many forms of life. But they're very different in each major branch of life. The steroids that animals make are not the same that certain microbes make that are not the same as other organisms make. So whatever steroid you find can tell you most likely what branch of life made that fossil. So they went and got eight new specimens, eight new fossils to do this test on. They used solvents to break down and extract the molecules and then identify them. And what they found was really cool, actually. In the sediment around the imprint, they found stigma steroids, which result from green algae. So algae in the sediment around this organism. And then on the impression, they found cholesteroids or cholesteroids, which are only found in animals. So this, along with previous research, is a pretty strong indication that Dickinsonia was so far, the earliest identified animal. So if their identification is correct, then that, and this has been a big question, as you said, puts animal life squarely in the Ediacaran. Absolutely. Com- complex, multicellular, mobile animal life right up there where we have not seen it before. Yes. And that, that is one of the things they mention is that this this indicates that animals got an earlier start than has typically been considered. Whether Dickinsonia was ancestral to anything or whether it was a a, a trial run of something that didn't make it past the Ediacaran is still hard to say. But it is definitely, as with this research and a lot of other research seems to support it, so it's a pretty strong case that it is an animal. Now, the other side note on this that I really like is they didn't just do this with Dickinsonia. They did it with another specimen, another uh, group of the biota. These are called Beltanelliforms, and they are these small half-inch discs that had been considered maybe to be like colonial bacteria or something similar to that. And when they used this technique on it, yeah, they found colonial bacteria was the answer. That is such a cool approach. I love that we're looking for molecules now. Yes! I love that this is a thing we can do now, and it, it opens up brand new windows into prehistoric life. That's so cool. And this is one, As I've said before, this is also one of my favorite things of a new technique that now can just go, all right, copy and paste on everything else. <laughs> yeah, let, now let's answer this question. It's just like, go down the list. Very cool stuff. It was pretty cool. My first bit of news is going way later. In fact, very recently, in fact, overlapping with human history, Ooh. Uh, reassessments of some very large birds, specifically hey. the elephant birds of Madagascar. We talked about those. We did in episode 40, Madagascar. This is research performed by James Hansford and Samuel Turvey in the Royal Society Open Science Journal, and we'll link to an article on smithsonian.com by Bridget Katz. So... 
over the last several thousand years, up until very recently, Madagascar was home to the apiornithids, or elephant birds. These were very large herbivorous birds endemic to Madagascar, some of the largest birds of all time, which has, of course, made them very interesting study uh, samples for scientists. But for a very long time, they've also been confusing taxonomically, which is to say there's been a lot of back and forth over how many species there are and how to exactly classify those species. Traditionally, there are two genera, Apiornis and Mullerornis, which have been split into as many as 15 species. But no one apparently has assessed that number recently. So these fellas decided to reassess the taxonomy by doing morphological analyses. So they went, they, they went around the world and collected from various museums and such 346 elephant bird specimens. Wow. And took measurements uh, on their physical proportions and then threw them all together in a statistical analysis. And like we've discussed for previous news, the point of the statistical analysis is to see, all right, how many groups do we have here? How many groups can you split this morphology into distinct categories? Because those likely correspond to our taxonomy, to our species and such. Yeah, what does the math say? Exactly. And what they found was not 15 species, not 15 types, but four. Four oh. morphotypes. Two of them they kept within Apiornis as two species of Apiornis that have already been named. The third one they identified as one species of the genus Mullerornis, but the fourth one did not fit quite the same way as those two. It was different enough, according to their analysis, that it belonged in a different genus. These, of course, include specimens that have been given other names before. The name Apiornis titan, because they are the largest of the elephant birds. <laughs> they found that there is enough difference that they believe that it should be a different genus, and so they named one. Cool. So it is now named Varombe titan, and Varombe is Malagasy, and I might be pronouncing that wrong, but it looks like Varombe, which means big bird. Big bird. Quite fitting. They were also able to calculate an, a new weight estimate. And their average weight estimate, so they had a range of estimates based on the bones that they have. Their average weight estimate is 650 kilograms or 1,400 pounds. Wow. Which, if their weight estimate is correct, and if all other weight estimates on birds are correct, makes it the largest bird of all time. Yeah. Bigger than the terror birds, bigger than the thunderbirds, the dromorniths, that this would be by weight. And it was probably about nine, ten feet tall. That To, to give a perspective, if they, they were still walking around, that weight would make them one of the heaviest archosaurs. They, they, <laughs> yes. they would be outweighing many of the smaller crocs and gators yeah. and caimans. Like, that is not an easy weight for big alligators to get to let alone of the other species. That's big. <laughs> That's like the size of a horse. Yes. <laughs> That's a big animal. Because terrestrial herbivores get to get huge. <laughs> so not only does this offer a new view on taxonomy, which is very helpful, because categorization is, is how do we understand their diversity, how do we understand their evolutionary relationships, but new genus, and 
possible contender for the biggest bird of all time. Very, very cool. It makes sense that the one that is notably big might be different. Uh, that's That happens a lot of times in groups of animals where you have the group, and there's this one that is really, really big and stands apart a little bit. Yes. Because it takes major changes in your biology to get really big a lot of the time. But that's really cool. Yeah. They also pointed out that, and some of our listeners might already be thinking this, this is a purely morphological analysis, but elephant birds are geologically recent enough that you can also get DNA. And the authors actually make the point that hopefully we'll be able to do a similar analysis with DNA in the future, and that can help to support or adjust their interpretation of the diversity. And surely those two will agree surely in line. This, why, how, why wouldn't they just sync up I, obviously <laughs> they will say the exact same things <laughs> and we can lay the whole thing to rest <laughs> and everything will be fine it's molecular analysis no yes 15 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I, we, we actually found 17 <laughs> and the dna tells us the bird was only a thousand pounds how does the dna t- listen dna the genes don't lie <laughs> so we're gonna go from big birds to tiny mammals for my next news okay i have found a new source about how early mammals were able to adjust their jaws to the jaws we see today by reducing the number of bones and increasing the number of ear bones without losing the ability to eat and hear <laughs> This research is done by Lautenschlager et al. and published in Nature. And the article we'll be linking you to is by the communications team, was the only people to take credit for writing it that I could find, from the University of Birmingham. (laughs) That's because it's a press release. (laughs) And the University of Birmingham News. Yes, this is a press release. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Press releases don't get bylines. They are put out by an institution. And that's okay. So to give you some background as to what we're talking about here, mammal jaws are weird when compared to other vertebrates. Most animals that have skulls and jaws similar to ours have multiple bones in the bottom jaw. Yes. So their bottom jaw has two halves, and in one of those halves, most animals have at least five bones that make it up. Yeah, reptiles, it's usually five or six. Yeah, so it it can vary depending. Some of them, a in some animals, you'll see a piece that is cartilage in one animal, maybe bone in another. But these are things like the dentary, the angular, the surangular, the articular, splenial, and then coronoid is also in there. The articular is the one that can be cartilage sometimes. These bones are pretty consistent throughout most groups, but in mammals, if you've ever seen an x-ray of your own face or a human jaw, you may notice we have one bone. Yes, on each side. On each side. Two halves, one bone. One big boomerang-shaped bone that makes our jaw up, and it's basically that dentary extended. That's the tooth-bearing bone, and it just became the jaw, and a lot of those backbones went in and added to those little bones in the ear that let you hear yes mammal ears are more complex than most other groups because we have a more complex system of bones to transmit sound with more detail that's all 
well and good. We've known that for a long, long time. The issue is how can an animal, a complex animal, change the number of bones in its mouth and the number of bones in its ear while still being able to use both of those functionally? Yeah, what was the in-between state like? And why, why were they able to do such extreme changes? So the researchers decided to use x-ray CT scanning to analyze a number of early mammal jaws and skulls. Uh, they scanned them. This generated a digital model for each that then could be analyzed in various ways. What they found was that the trend they noticed among these mammals was that their small size affected the way their jaws function. Hmm. So an interesting thing about physics for all of you is that physics does not scale. You would think that physics is consistent across, but when you do a small-scale version of something versus a big scale, the physics are actually very different. And having teeny tiny jaws meant it reduced the stresses from biting while still allowing them to have enough pressure to have an effective bite. Interesting. So their jaws were not being put under the same kind of pressures and stresses that a jaw our size or bigger are experiencing, which makes them more malleable. There's not as much to go wrong as things are shifting. So these bones can change and reduce and move while still being able to eat. Mostly things probably like insects and small stuff like that. So the size of early mammals was actually a benefit. And this is probably in big part because we were not on top of the food chain <laughs> during our early days. The reptiles, the archosaurs were ruling the land. So getting small was a survival mechanism that allowed us to do something else cool. Oh, that's cool. So, so the idea here would be presumably that if mammals were large, this particular path, uh, evolutionary path, would not have been, but potentially not have been sustainable to, because too much would have been asked of the jaws during this transitionary period. Yes, that, it, that a, a tiger-sized animal that suddenly started adjusting the bones in its mouth would sabotage the effectiveness right, right. of a mouth that size with that much power. Which is, it's one of those, I like this because that is a criteria that I never would have connected to the mouth. So, well, how, well, how big is the mouth? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a question I would have asked. That's a really neat connection to make there. Mm-hmm. Very cool. The last bit of news is about plants, but once again, a really large specimen. We had Allie on, so I can't, I can't be snide yes. about plant stuff now. <laughs> this is research by Nathan Judd et al. in Science Advances. Also among the authors on this paper are Mike Demick, my buddy from up on Long Island, and Josh Matthews, who you will have heard from in the SciFest episode because we interviewed him and met him at St. Louis. And we'll be linking the popular article in National Geographic by Michael Greshko. So, mid-Cretaceous, huh? Terrestrial remains from the mid-Cretaceous are pretty rare. This was a time of high sea level, not a lot of preservation for land-based ecosystems, which is a little bit frustrating because it's a time where angiosperms, flowering plants, were really sort of taking off. Middle to early Cretaceous angiosperms are very rare, and they're also, they also tend to be very small. 
But by later in the Cretaceous, by around 75 million years ago, we have evidence of very large angiosperm trees. Mm-hmm. So most trees today that you would think of, many, you know, many of those are angiosperms, flowering plants. So this leaves the question of when did that large size start? Well, this study discovered a surprisingly early, surprisingly large tree. Cool. This is in a newly discovered fossil assemblage in the Ferron Sandstone in the Mancos Shale Formation in Utah, Upper Cretaceous around 92 million years ago. These assemblages, this, these sites, this is multiple sites, have fossils of turtles and crocs and fish and dinosaurs, things you would typically expect, also lots of other plants. But one of the most striking fossils that they discovered there was a fossil of a tree called Paraphyllanthoxylon, which was just under two meters across, wide, around. (laughs) Wow. So that's around six feet and around 11 meters long. So around 36 feet long. And that was just a segment of it. The authors estimated, based on the segment of the tree they had, that the full height of this tree would have been about 50 meters or 170 feet tall. It's home tree. It's huge. That's ridiculous. This is not only the earliest evidence of large flowering trees in North America, but the oldest angiosperm log more than a meter across anywhere in the world. Nice. This places... So not only does this give us a sense of the evolutionary trajectory of angiosperms, but... It also paints a picture for us. It tells us that as far back as 90 million years ago, 15 million years earlier than we thought, giant angiosperm trees were part of the forest canopy, part of that ecosystem, already back in the Turonian time. I like these kind of discoveries because it drives home that concept that we are only finding a portion of what was. Yes. We thought things really kicked off at this point. And then suddenly, much earlier than that point, we find a plant that really is way bigger than we would have expected to find at that age, which means that our perception of the history of that group is wrong, is probably mistaken, because if we were thinking this was the beginning, but then we find a big successful thing earlier than that, we are missing gaps. And it's just, it's a... I feel these are really nice reminders of the the preservation bias and the in, incompleteness of the fossil record, which is a little depressing, but it's also <laughs> humbling in that way, and I, I appreciate them for that. Every now and then we get these reminders of like, hey, just so you know, this actually happened way before you thought it did. We're not giving the rest of the information, but this is, <laughs> this is true. It also changes the literal picture that we have mm-hmm. of this time period. That's yes, a major change in how we picture that ecosystem, which is really cool. Yeah, get go get to it, paleo artists. I want to see this. Yes. <laughs> Paraphyllanthoxylon. <laughs> and that is the news, which means it is time to move on to our main event and now your feature presentation. The, the Great Dying. The Great Dying. <laughs> Our story begins 
in the Permian period. This should be like, imagine film noir. Yes, exactly. It was the Permian period. It was the Permian period. I knew something was coming. The continents had been colluding for a long, long time, coming together, slowly but surely. The air was hot. The shallow seas were few. There was disaster on the horizon, but none of us knew how bad it was going to be. All right, that's enough of that. So, <laughs> let's set the stage and explain what the world was like in the Permian. So before the extinction, we're leading up to the extinction. The Permian period is the final period of the Paleozoic era. So the Phanerozoic is split into the big three. The Cenozoic is the age of mammals. Before that, the Mesozoic is the age of reptiles, mostly the age of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. But before that was the Paleozoic, which it doesn't have a fancy name. The age of other things. (laughs) The age of prehistoric beasts. Yep. Or monsters, that's yep, it. that's it. Walking with monsters. Walking with the monsters. Paleozoic. The Permian period begins around 299 million years ago and ends around 252 million years ago. It borders the Triassic period. During this time, the world looked very different. Mainly because the world was dominated by Pangaea. Yes. This is around the time that Pangaea is finally coalescing, so... Almost all of the continental mass of the Earth is condensed into one major connected supercontinent. Mm-hmm. And all of the waters are one giant ocean. Yes, called Panthalassa. Which is a cool name. It is. The southern part of Pangaea at this time was over the pole. So you had polar conditions down south. Toward the north, warmer conditions and especially arid environments. Mm-hmm widespread deserts because when you have a lot a huge continent you are parts of your continent the interiors are far removed from the moisture of the oceans very much how physics doesn't scale neither does weather yes it's can't if it can't reach the inside you don't get rain yeah so you have these very arid environments across the permian you also get because the other thing that the ocean does being near the ocean buffers some of the shifts in weather and climate patterns across the year so on the supercontinent of pangaea there was also a very high degree of seasonality mm-hmm. so you would have had more extreme shifts between wet and dry season for example there are some very famous permian sites across the the world the red beds of texas and oklahoma the Karoo of south africa full of really cool uh, permian age stuff but since we're talking about an extinction a mass extinction we want to know we want to set the stage with what was around at that time who were the players who were the players in the oceans there were the oceans at this time were very classic paleozoic lots of nautiloids which mm-hmm. are your spiral shelled cephalopods uh, early ammonites brachiopods the shelled Creatures that we spent so much time talking about in our Spotlight series with Dr. Stagall. Plenty of mollusks. Uh, reefs at this time, in addition to brachiopods and sponges and things, were made up mainly of two groups of corals. The rugos, or horn corals, and the tabulate corals. Mm-hmm. I actually came across an interesting thing about those two, because I was taking notes for a thing at the aquarium. And it mentioned the fact that reefs were less so during this time because Pangaea diminished coastline. Yes, absolutely. 
you have with, with a major continent, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that is not in my notes, but I wanted to say it. Mm-hmm. With one major continent, there are fewer ocean shelf yeah. areas. The shoreline is less. Less surface area. Yes. Which is which is very an interesting side effect I never would have thought of. Yeah. There are trilobites during the Permian, although there are very few remaining. There are Eurypterids, the sea scorpions, which we yeah. talked about with Dave Marshall in Spotlight. Although also not doing not nearly their heyday. <laughs> and while we keep referring back to Spotlight, uh there was a particular group of foraminifera called the Fusilinids, which are so, so common here that they're used as Permian index fossils. <laughs> so thriving oceanic environments. On land, there is a little bit of an exciting change happening with plants. This is among the earliest times that we see common gymnosperms. So gymnosperms are plants that have cones that hold seeds. Yeah. So think pine and spruce and trees like that. These at this time are becoming more common over the spore-producing plants that were so popular in the swamps of the Carboniferous. So the the, the fern-type reproducing yes. is giving way to the conifer-type reproducing. Exactly. We see the rise of conifers. We see ginkgos and cycads, a famous type of plant called glossopterus. And many of these plants show adaptations for arid environments being able to thrive and reproduce in environments that are extremely warm or extremely dry. Which is a place that conifers nowadays also thrive in, and not typically hot and dry, but cold and dry is yes. one of the reasons yeah, yeah. that needles are really good. Yeah, those needly leaves and then those cones, like a pine cone mm-hmm. that holds the seeds and it's this wonderful protective shell around the cone yeah, as opposed to being a fruiting tree where your protective shell is delicious is <laughs> <and> juicy is <laughs> is dinner <laughs> so exciting time for plants and on land it's a, a extremely exciting time because tetrapods land vertebrates are really on the rise mm-hmm. you have amphibians like your temnospondyls a uh, uh, famous Permian amphibians include Diplocolis and Seymoria. These are like like salamander or croc-shaped yes. creatures. Some of them very large. Some of them croc-sized even. Yeah, probably predatory in a very similar way. Yes. These included Temnospondyls, Lepospondyls, things like that. You also had reptiles and near-reptiles. <laughs> uh, these are some of the earliest reptiles. So reptiles only recently started at this time period and they hadn't yet given rise to the familiar forms we see today. There were the Capturinids, which were like lizards. There were er, the earliest archosaurs, mm. but not quite things that we would recognize. You had anapsids, which included uh, some particularly large forms like Scutosaurus, which was this half a ton big herbivore. Yeah, bulky. Bulky. And you even had forms that had already taken back to aquatic environments. Which I love. <laughs> so you had aquatic, uh, there was Mesosaurus, which was very croc-like, but not a croc. Uh, Claudiosaurus, which lived in Madagascar. So there is there you have this rising diversity of reptiles. But the land is dominated by synapsids. Yeah. 
So amniotes are the animals, are, are vertebrate, land vertebrates that are in large part characterized by amniotic eggs. That is to say, all other vertebrates, all amphibians and fish, obviously, are tied to the water. Yep. Your eggs cannot survive by themselves away from the water. They're gooey. Amniotes came up with an egg that can, which is especially helpful when your landmass is full of arid environments that are particularly far away from the oceans. Yeah, you're not going to be able to find ponds just laying around in yes. this situation. So the two major groups that inherited this trait were the sauropsids, which are effectively your reptiles, and the synapsids. Now, eventually the synapsids would give rise to mammals, but that had not happened in the Permian yet. In the Permian, you had groups like the pelicosaurs, which includes the famous sail-backed animals like Dimetrodon and Edaphrosaurus. Also, Cotylorhynchus, which, just Google it, because it's, <laughs> it's got this huge, like, it looks like an elephant seal. Yeah. Which is this tiny, dorky little head stuck on the end of this giant body. Some of these, some of the pelicosaurs were, you know, 10 feet long. These were big animals. Yeah, they, they were impressive. There were also Dicynodonts, very yeah. famous herbivorous. Uh, they had two tusks and probably a beak, and these went from very little to very large. Uh, the famous, uh, throughout the Permian, you had a huge diversity, which also included the famous Gorgonopsids. Oh, they're so cool. Which could, in some cases, be very large saber-toothed predators. To say some of the first things with saber teeth. Yes. There were carnivorous therocephalians. You had early cynodonts, which were uh, much more mammal-like, but again, not quite mammals. It's like a, a badger skin applied over a lizard almost. It's really... Yeah, they're super strange. They're really weird. They're very reptile-like animals but they're not no reptiles not a great taxonomic word but they're not really yeah. reptiles well it's they're uh, definitely not mammals it's why you'll often hear that term mammal like reptiles thrown around yes uh, but we don't but that has fallen out of favor because yes. these aren't really it's misleading reptiles. It, it's a, yes. it's a confusing term but this is why that term came up is because they have features that really uh, just at a glance lean you toward you can see connections uh, and similarities. Yes. And that's what was majorly in charge. So, And this is the first time that this has really happened. Synapsids take over in the Permian. And this is a unique ecosystem. So the sea is full of familiar sea stuff. The land is full of really ancient precursors to, to the familiar land stuff. Also, uh, a, a brief note, the air is dominated by insects. Yeah. The only flying animals that existed during the Permian are insects. And they're, they're in huge abundance. There are tons of different groups of them. You've got those cool things like, you know, the, the ancient dragonfly and dragonfly relatives as the dominant aerial predators, which I love. I love being able to say that insects are the dominant aerial predators of an ecosystem. It's That's one of those aspects that is weird to think about and i like to wonder how full was the sky when if you were to walk around during the permian like are there areas that are like birds today where it would just be full of insects or was it just was it different because there was only one group flying yeah without any birds or bats to snatch them out of the sky did they just fill oh that's cool right 
Or was oh, it an okay. empty sky because the the insects were not, you know, dominating it the same way that we see birds do it today? Yeah, yeah. That's weird. Indeed. So that's the Permian. This is the Permian period. It's hot. It's dry. There's all sorts of weird creatures living on uh, Pangaea and probably in the oceans, too, although there's less known about Panthalassa. A very alien world. It is. It's 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 well, it's one of those where, like, if you go back to the Mesozoic, it's it's all right. At least I can recognize mammal, turtle, crocodilian, lizard. If you go back here, it's like, well, I can kind of recognize reptile. And there's amphibians, but there's not really frogs or salamanders. And there's, I don't know what you would call synapses. No, it's like like, a person today. If you gave it, go watch the first episode of Primeval. Yeah. Wasn't that a synapsid that came out of the... I believe so. It might have been a Piraeosaur, actually, which was a... Anyway. Gorgonopsid was early on in the series. That was the same Uh, episode, yes. There was Gorgonopsids there, too. It's... The Permian is very much... The world of the Permian is like a smash-up of Camino meets Tatooine. It's just big desert, big ocean with lots of unrecognizable creatures on it. Yeah. And it's awesome. (laughs) And then disaster at the end of the permian right around 252 million years we witness an enormous extinction now a quick note about the big five many people who are familiar with mass extinctions of of earth history have heard of the big five and the big five are these sort of classic list of the big mass extinctions the ordovician the devonian the permian the triassic the cretaceous Two of which we've talked about in this uh, in our show before, episode yeah. five and fifteen, and the designation of the Big Five came from a studies in the eighties, I believe, by Raupin Sepkowski that looked at diversity over time in marine fossils. Let's start at the Cambrian and go all the way to the present. How has diversity changed over time? And they found five times where diversity dropped dramatically. During mass extinction. Okay, there they are, the big five. Yeah, noticeable downward spikes. Yes. But we've been studying since then, and these are not the only mass extinctions. They're not really unique, aside from being particularly bad. Yes. They might not be the big five worst, uh, because this leaves out, like, before the Cambrian, and it leaves, yeah, so... These might not be, like, the worst ever mass extinctions, but they are famously the most the ones that were immediately noticeable when we first started looking at the evidence that points to mass extinction. Mm-hmm. However, even with all the data we have accumulated since then, one thing that has gone largely uncontested is that the end Permian extinction is the worst one. <laughs> it's I love that. I love the picture. Of someone going, you know what, as we've learned more, the big five really may not stand out as much as we thought they did. They go, really, even the Permian? Oh, no, 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 the Permian, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All five are, are really bad. They are certainly, vi- like, they're, they're awful, dramatic events. But the Permian really does stick out. It's, when you hear the numbers, it's it sounds like someone's <laughs> yes. making it up. The extinction event has been dated, recent dating, places at around 251.9 million years ago. And the extinction, the, the full course of the extinction appears to happen 
over less than 100,000 years. Some studies that I found cited as few as 80 or 60,000 years of duration, which geologically is nothing. That's ridiculously is, small. I just thought to do a thing, and I'm going to do it, and I want everyone to know that I'm fully aware of the pop culture weight of this. <laughs> geologically, that's... <laughs> so what are those numbers we'll talk about? You will commonly hear it cited that in the marine realm, at least 90 to 95% of marine species went extinct. Yeah. 90 to 95%. Holy cow. Like, th this is an extinction that could, that could have, like, made us Mars. <laughs> the, yeah, this was, <laughs> th we came dang close, especially in the ocean. On land, uh, the numbers that I found repeat repeatedly are up to 70% mm -hmm. of terrestrial species. Yes. And altogether in both realms, it's estimated that at least half of living families came to an end at this time. Not species, not genus, family level. This was a ridiculously intense extinction. Yeah, it, it's this was not certain groups went away. This just a lot of groups went away. <laughs> yes. Now... In the lead up to this extinction, so so uh, we talked in the the KPG episode about what was happening beforehand. Was yeah, there was a decline? A bad day. Yes, it is worth pointing out that there were other apparent extinctions earlier in the Permian. So there was an event called Olson's extinction that happened around two hundred and seventy million years ago, about twenty or so million years before this. And there is the end Guadalupian extinction, which happens about 260 million years ago, which exhibited major losses. Some recent research has suggested it might have been a gradual decline. But regardless, the 20 million years but leading up to the end Permian saw, it seems, two other major mass extinction events. Wow. That doesn't change the fact that the one at the end of the Permian seems to be the big one. And is apparently separate from those other two. Yeah, but thing, things were not good. Wasn't up. great. The Permian no. wasn't a great time. <laughs> it's it was it that it sounds very much like an alien world made up for a movie because it's like <laughs> everything's dry. These big scaly beasts. Every it's, you know, it's, it's like a pitch. Uh, it's yes, like pitch yeah, black. Pitch yeah. black. Absolutely. Where it's just <laughs> it's 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 kill or be killed. And yeah, it's a rough time. The actual end Permian extinction, uh, there's some evidence that there may have been distinct pulses throughout it. This might vary region to region. There's some evidence that communities were kind of restructuring in the, the short lead up to it. There's been suggested evidence that there was a more gradual loss, but then other times people look at it and find a very sudden, very short-lived extinction event. So there's a lot of unknowns here. And that's something we should point out. We pointed this out the last couple, the last several extinction episodes. Trying to understand an enormous complex event like this is very difficult. Mm -hmm. There's a lot we don't know. This is the oldest extinction event we've talked about so far on the podcast. And as we've mentioned in the past, the farther back you go, the less evidence there is. Yep. So there's a lot of unknowns about this. But what we know is that there was a ridiculous loss of biodiversity at this time. The way I sometimes think of this 
this uh, vagueness on exactly when things started and when they ended and what was the, is like trying to define when did a fad begin to go out of style. <laughs> <laughs> depends on who you ask yeah. <laughs> because I may still be, think disco is awesome. You know, and it's it's that it it is not a clean cut where everything all of a sudden just died all together at once. Yeah. And so, the fossil record's incomplete and it can yes. be. All that said, uh, let's move on to a segment that in my notes is called Who Died? Who Died? <laughs> who, di- who Died? <laughs> who, who Died and Left the Dinosaurs in Church? In All of the these. oceans. <laughs> in the oceans, we see enormous losses in groups like brachiopods, mm-hmm. crinoids, which are your sea lilies, the nautiloids and ammonites, gastropods, foraminifera, and when I say huge losses, I mean near total extinction. Yes. These are groups that squeaked by. Very much like we mentioned with birds, in that even though birds survived the extinction, they did not make it through smelling like daisies. They were almost almost completely wiped out. So these these groups, and many of these groups are still around today. Oh, yeah. They almost weren't. Brachiopods, crinoids, forams, still around, but boy, they barely made it through this this boundary. A huge bottleneck. Even the groups that did make it through experienced major losses. There are major lo- like more than half uh, reported in bivalves and ostracods and bryozoans. Many groups in the ocean disappeared completely. Yeah. Those tabulate and rugose corals we mentioned, gone. Bye. Forever. This is the end. The blastoid echinoderms, and if you've never seen what a blastoid <laughs> looks like, they don't, they don't have cannons on their backs. They're these little, they look like little uh, flower buds. Yeah. But they were animals, and they sort of would sit on the ocean floor uh, and, and collect food. Very cool-looking fossils. Gone by the end of this. There is some evidence that they may have been gone before the actual end Permian, but if they weren't, they certainly didn't survive the end Permian boundary. The exact same thing is true of the trilobites. There were trilobites still holding on after 300 million years of Paleozoic life. Uh, it's been suggested that trilobites may have vanished earlier in the Permian, and if they made it to the, the Permian and Permian boundary, they did not make it past it. Yep. Also, Eurypterids, the sea scorpions, same story. A few remaining groups made it into the, the Permian, did not make it uh, beyond that. Yeah, many of the groups who were not thriving during the Permian, like they once yes. had, did not make it past this. Uh, same thing with the spiny sharks, the Acanthodians, which were oh. super awesome in the Devonian. Yeah, what a, what a shame. Wiped out in this event. And just in general, this is really interesting, on the other side of the Permian-Triassic boundary, after the extinction event, there's just this huge loss of reefs and burrowing trace fossils interesting that you just see this just stuff has been taken out of ecosystems yeah way fewer burrows way fewer reefs i also saw things that mentioned stuff like the fish at the beginning of the triassic all look the same because oh yes and we'll get to that (laughs) yes 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 (laughs) on land as many as two-thirds of all tetrapods went extinct including most of those cool synapsids we were just talking about Yep. Most of those groups vanished. A few make it through because a few would give rise to one would give rise to mammals. Most of those disappear. Uh, this is also 
the only known mass extinction to have caused dramatic losses in insects, which is notable. Insects have obviously experienced extinction before, but for the most part, they seem to go through mass extinction boundaries relatively fine. Several orders of insects vanish at the Permian and Permian boundary. Wow. It was so bad that even the insects, have, although funnily enough, and I don't, don't read any more into this, than, <laughs> than, but in the early Triassic, most of the remaining insects were relatives of cockroaches, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is, or, or rather, or cockroaches or cockroach-like organisms, which I think is delightful. They get through, we're going to be famous for this. <laughs> yeah, this gonna is what we're going to be us. known for. Get the Twinkies. <laughs> uh, in the plants, you, you remember those gymnosperms <laughs> that were doing so well? That were doing really hot? <laughs> uh, a lot of those disappear. The famous Glossopteris flora vanishes uh, here. Just a general decline in forests. Just this huge, just like the reefs were largely wiped out. Forests were largely wiped out in this event. That's one of the crazy things is we're, we're used that mass extinctions can remove big players. Like, all right, no more dinosaurs. That's, that's a big change. But, you know, the ecosystem was still there. Now it's just l less full. Right. This was an extinction that went, all right, no more of this habitat. Yeah. <laughs> this habitat is gone for now. Yes. No, let's do without reefs for a bit. And those forests, you can have a few. <laughs> That's crazy. And it's removing ecological roles. So a lot of, like I said, those burrowers, reefs, and the re reason you have reefs disappearing is because you're losing reef builders mm -hmm. i've also seen some reports of losses of things like small browsers that in some places you just that particular niche is just unfilled now that whole ecological role is gone uh the same the same paper that mentioned a loss of small browsers mentioned a loss of small fish eaters yeah just piscivory the kind of animal that is small and eats fish gone just the bird they just wiped those guys out when you get rid of the fish you get rid of a lot of other animals too yeah that's so, crazy huge losses in species losses in entire majorly important groups in just demolishing of ecosystems this is like those post-apocalyptic movies where it's like and and then all electronics are you know made made obsolete or all yes. the gas it's it's that kind of thing of like we re we didn't just you know b blow up city it's this thing that is fundamental to the way your world works we're taking that away doesn't exist anymore yeah, no more technology it that kind of thing is this is a ridiculous shift in the way the world worked yeah it, very apocalyptic yeah indeed indeed there are some patterns uh apparent in the losses uh besides the pattern of it just sucked for everybody. <laughs> I'm noticing a pattern here. A lot of stuff's dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, there's see, something's going on here. <laughs> hey, guys. Back to my film noir. I could tell something was wrong because all the things that used to be living here weren't. But now, and, and we should specify, and we said this definitely in episode five, there's often this sort of image in our heads of there are survivors and there are victims of a mass extinction. And we, I, I feel like there's this misconception that the survivors skip merrily across the extinction boundary. Yeah. That's not the case. I don't know that anything 
skipped merrily across the end Permian boundary. Well, and I think with a lot of mass extinctions, that, that thought's there because we have those animals around still. But I, I, I think the more correct way to think about a mass extinction is like a war. Like, just because one side wins doesn't mean it <laughs> wasn't just, <laughs> it was just okay the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So everyone on the planet would have felt this extinction. But there are patterns. So, for example, there is notable loss in calcareous organisms. Yes. Organisms that rely on calcium-based, you know, calcium carbonate, things like that, in their shells and their skeletons, like corals, like brachiopods, exhibit major losses. Uh, I've seen it pointed out several times that organisms particularly susceptible to elevated carbon dioxide levels... There's some mm. foreshadowing for you, which includes part of the same reason that you are are seeing preferential loss in calcareous organisms. Uh, organisms with lower metabolisms seem to have suffered. So there there are patterns to be gleaned here that there was preferential extinction. Yes. In certain groups. One other thing that I really want to point out, just because it's one of my favorite little notes at the Permian Triassic boundary, there is there has been noted uh, for a long time. A fungal spike. Yep. That is to say, if you have a graph and you chart how much fungus you detect in your sediments, there's a huge jump upwards at the boundary. Yeah. And this has been interpreted as it was just a heyday for decomposers. With all the forests and stuff dying, your fungi are going to have a great time. It's just it's just that, that, that dream moment for a fungus. <laughs> oh, oh. Everything's dead. Yes. Now is our time. Now, yes, yes, it's our time. Rise, rise, <laughs> rise. Now, this has been challenged by some. It's been suggested that this might be an artifact of fossilization and it's not actually a fungal spike. Others have suggested that there might actually be a fungal spike, but it's an aquatic fungal spike. And so it doesn't quite indicate the same thing. One of my favorite things that I read was the suggestion that what people had identified as fungus were actually algae, which would make it an algal spike, which is even cooler because that's, that's like a yeah. global red tide. Oh, my God. <laughs> because algae tend you get those algal blooms in times of environmental stress, in times of, of, of certain environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. So I like I'm happy with either of those options. Yes. I think an algal spike sounds fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> this event is so major that it not only brings the Permian period to a close, it brings the entire Paleozoic era to a close. The difference from one side to the other is enough geologically, even way back in the day before we, we fully understood the mass extinction effect, was enough for early geologists to say, okay, Paleozoic on one side, Mesozoic on the other. Yeah. But now we come to the big question, the $252 million question. <laughs> Why? What happened? What was it that caused this preposterous loss of life? How, how could something kill this much? Yes. What was the culprit behind the crime?
the Permian-Triassic boundary, that, that border between the Permian and the Triassic when the Permian ends, is notable for all the signs of extinction, but also has been noted for various signs of what I'm going to call chaotic chemistry. Things were not going great. And alongside <laughs> the extinctions, the loss of life, there's all this interesting chemical evidence that oceans especially were out of whack. So what sort of things do we see? We see uh, among the most prominent is a rapid rise at this time of carbon dioxide in the oceans. Yes. You see these chemical signatures of just an increase of dissolved CO2, and this can be problematic for organisms for a number of reasons. Largely, and this is familiar to anyone who keeps up to date with climate change conversations, rising CO2 in the oceans leads to ocean acidification. Yes, it does. And that can that combination can disrupt organisms metabolism it can disrupt immune responses and especially it disrupts formation of shells and skeletons of things like corals and things like clams this is why you get things like coral bleaching yes it interferes with the ability of these creatures to create those structures yeah the the carbon being added in effectively binds to the things that the shell makers need to build their shells and it, yes. it ties up those molecules in a really complex way but it's it's bad it is bad another very famous effect around this time period is anoxia which is to say a dramatic decrease in oxygen in the waters there is widespread evidence of low oxygen in ocean basins and in shallow seas. This one, we don't have to explain why that's a problem. Oxygen's kind of important, and so when you start losing it, you start losing your organisms. Yeah, I mean, I like it. I've always been a fan. I, I, I preferred phlogiston. <laughs> this can be related also to disrupted ocean circulation. So not only currents, as we imagine them, but also the cycling of waters and nutrients. Uh, yes. Vertically as well as horizontally in the oceans. There is also around this time chemical evidence for a dramatic rise in temperature. Sea surface temperatures around the very end of the Permian rise fairly rapidly 6 to 10 degrees Celsius, which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous amount uh, of rise. We are currently very concerned about 2 degrees rise Celsius Yes, in our current a climate change scenario. That's exactly what I was about to say is most corals cannot survive a two degree Celsius temperature change up or down. Yes, this is, uh, that's ridiculous. So there was a major rise in temperature. Uh, and, and of course, temperature rise can not only, obviously, if you need a certain temperature, right? Plants and corals and things require certain temperatures, but also that can lead to things like ocean anoxia, and that can be correlated with rising CO2, which can also affect the CO2 levels in the oceans. Yeah. So, so a lot of these things are probably not disconnected. Chemistry can also be temperature-based. Yes, it can. Another famous chemical chaos of the end Permian is a rise in hydrogen sulfide in the waters. H2S. Hydrogen sulfide is toxic. 
Yes. Uh, this gets into your waters and you end up with poisoning of your organisms. This uh, often goes hand in hand with anoxic conditions, low oxygen, mm -hmm. because anoxia creates wonderful environments for the kinds of bacteria that metabolize and release hydrogen sulfide. So you get low oxygen and that favors the rise of hydrogen sulfide. The combination of those two things is called eusinia. Ooh. Low oxygen, high sulfide waters. Eusinic waters. That domino effect of one situation gets bad, which makes another situation worse. Yes. And I've heard the description, and I think this is the most uh, visceral description that I've heard, is that you might get these conditions may have started in deeper waters and then flooded the shallow seas. Mm. So they seep up and go across the shallow seas where you have your reefs and stuff. Also, hydrogen sulfide increasing in the water can leak into the atmosphere. Yeah. And also, not only is that a toxic gas, but it can disrupt things like ozone. Oh, interesting. Uh, and the ozone layer is kind of important because yes. it protects us from solar radiation. So lots of chemical nonsense happening that can be interacting in all sorts of different ways, but are all very obvious changes happening at this time and very obviously bad for life on the planet. Yeah, negative things happening and stacking on top of one another. I remember years ago reading about, actually one of the professors at Penn State when I was there studies this, uh, this extinction and the effects of things like hydrogen sulfide and... I've read, and I don't know how prominent this view is. I didn't come across it uh, prominently in my research, so it might not be that big a deal these days. But the idea that hydrogen sulfide release could have been like those uh, lake eruptions. Oh, yeah. Where you get poisonous gases building up in a lake, and then it bubbles up to the surface all at once. Yes. And you end up with this toxic cloud that can damage land ecosystems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, so I don't know how dramatic it's thought that that was, but certainly if you're releasing hydrogen sulfide, you might end up with toxic conditions. Interesting. So we've got chemical chaos, but of course this has not, this doesn't answer the burning question that I know our listeners are wondering. <laughs> we had loss of life, yes. We had rising CO2 and temperatures and lowered oxygen, yes. And that probably caused death, but what caused that? Why did these things happen at this time, at this boundary, in this, 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 our planet Earth? The number one answer to this question, the number one most likely answer to this question is, and stop me if you've heard this one before, <laughs> large igneous province flood basalt volcanism. Yep. At this time, we also see the formation in our planet's history of the Siberian Traps. Uh, remember the Deccan Traps from Episode 5. Traps refers to a huge region, the large igneous province, of basaltic igneous rock. Where volcanic rock is just built up over and over after eruption after eruption. Yes. The Siberian Traps cover approximately 2 million cubic kilometers. That's more millions than I thought you were going to say. Of volume in Russia. And remember, all that rock started as lava. It covers uh, around 1.6 million square kilometers to a depth of several hundred to several thousand meters. Wow. This was a lot of lava. 
once again, meters was not the measurement I was necessarily <laughs> yes, expecting there. 400 to 3,000 meters. And remember, a meter is just under 3.3 feet. The Siberian traps, uh, the, the, these eruptions, this continuous erupting appears to have uh, lasted for several hundred thousand years across the Permian boundary, across the end Permian. So this is something that was going on, started before the extinctions and continued right across them. Given that there are also similar flood basalt evidences for many of our mass extinctions, and given that this is the one major thing that's happening at this time period, this has been linked. Uh, this is the most common thing you'll hear linked to the Permian extinction. Yes, absolutely. And it's easy to see how it can be linked to all those wacky things. Volcanic eruptions release lots of gas. Not only is this going to... Obviously, if you're within that 1.6 million square kilometers, you're in trouble. It's a very, very bad place. It's, to be. It's, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> but even outside of that, you're getting all this toxic gas released into the atmosphere. Um, you're also getting CO2. Yes, you are. Volcanoes release a ton of CO2, and your CO2 is going to cause warming. And your warming can lead to low oxygen in the waters. And the CO2 rise in the atmosphere can make a CO2 rise in the, in the oceans. And then those low oxygen environments can favor those hydrogen sulfide bacteria. And you can see how this chain of events kind of kicks off. Also, those toxic gases I, I mentioned uh, in the air, in the water, opaque gases, ashes, can block out sunlight, as we discussed for the end Cretaceous, which can lead to cooling and in interrupted photosynthesis for at least a short period of time. You're going to get acid rain. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff that is damaging to the environment from a volcanic eruption. This was the volcanic eruption, the largest flood basalt eruption we know of, mm -hmm. series of eruptions, and it went on for hundreds of thousands of years. So just for this time, the Earth was pumping the minerals and chemicals from beneath its surface into the atmosphere just continuously. Yep. And... There's evidence, apparently, that unlike most basaltic, you know, basaltic lava flows, think Kilauea in Hawaii, slow oozing lava, right? Think the movie Volcano, think the lava in that one scene in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom where the lava is conveniently slow so that the protagonist can roll away. Like, like a mudslide. Yeah, like it's, yeah, molasses, this sort of ooze. But there's evidence that Part of the traps eruptions, the Siberian traps eruptions, were pyroclastic, which is to say explosive, which means even more ash, which means even more release of, of nasty stuff. It was a bad time. <laughs> it made, made me think of SciFest. It's the boring and non-boring volcanoes. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it has also been pointed out that there is at least some reason to think that the Siberian traps may have infiltrated coal beds oh no and if you ignite coal beds that's just a whole lot more carbon dioxide <laughs> like that's so it it was an enormous <laughs> volcanic series of volcanic eruptions plus fossil fuels Whew. so if that's the case then that would make this that much worse so wait wait wait, wait. the release of all that coal what you're saying is that the sudden burning of fossil fuels is bad for the planet 
imagine that. This is crazy. We we have to some somebody <laughs> tell. Well, Quickly, listeners, gonna, yeah, spread the word. The joke I was going to make is somebody tell the president, but then eh, I don't know. Gonna, <laughs> anyway, now one of the things that is complicated about the Siberian traps linked to the extinction is that, as always, there's issues with timing. Uh, the traps begin long before the actual extinction boundary. So were they the direct cause? Was there something that happened at the boundary that was a little different? That's very difficult to pin down. Was it the only thing? Was there a buildup of effects? The exact link, we don't know. But they sure seem like a good candidate for the, the main suspect in this event. Some other things that have been pointed out include the release of methane. So in much the same way that... Uh, we talked about those coal beds being a store of carbon dioxide. You can get these stores underground of methane clathrates or methane hydrates, which often uh, form in permafrost and ocean sediments. Yes. And these are just these huge reservoirs of methane. And this is something that has come up in modern day climate discussions, that the melting of permafrost might release stored methane. And methane is a big deal greenhouse gas. Yes, it is. So that's going to make, if you're getting warming from this, that's going to make it even worse. Uh, so there has been the suggestion that maybe there was release of methane at this time. For some reason, that reason could be the volcanism. Just like it could have interrupted coal beds, it could have interrupted stores of methane. There's also been the suggestion, because of course there has, of an asteroid impact. Yep. There is. There has been... Evidence put forth of extraterrestrial materials like shocked quartz, which is what you get during an impact, or metals you would expect to see abundant in asteroids, like the evidence that's present at the end Cretaceous boundary that makes us strongly suspect an asteroid impact. This would have similar effects. Uh, for more on what an asteroid would do, go listen to episode five. <laughs> but yeah, ash and carbon dioxide and all sorts of crazy atmospheric effects. Every time I think of this the, the, this hypothesis, it makes me think of uh, Lilo and Stitch. When Pleakley's talking in the beginning, he goes, yeah, well, life has to start over on the planet every time they get hit by an asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has become very tempting. As soon as the evidence for the end Cretaceous was found, it became very tempting for people to say, oh, well, remember those big five? Mm -hmm. Asteroids, maybe. Yeah, it's kind of the, um, it's a similar situation as to what, uh, we talked about in my first news bit in that they found a new technique of looking at the molecules to try to identify what group it was from. So they applied it to other stuff. This is the same concept. We found a new technique for mass extinction. So let's look for it in all the others because maybe it's there. Yeah. Now, this has been much contested. Yes. Um, a lot of people have come forth and said, well, I, d I don't see the same things these these other claims you're finding. Uh, this doesn't necessarily indicate asteroid impact. And this is not helped by the fact that we haven't found a crater. Yeah, there is no smoking gun. So asteroid impacts on the table, but it's not uh, It's not a major prominent suggestion. Uh, well, it's a prominent suggestion, but it's no Siberian traps. Yeah, the way I heard it described in one of the things I read was asteroid impact very well answers many of the questions, but is not required to answer those questions. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily fit the evidence. Yes. So it's a good answer for a similar problem, but it might not be the answer to this problem. 
Yes. And once again, you, you got the Siberian traps right there, and that's very tempting uh, <laughs> to, to look at. And then, of course, there's other suggestions, particularly, and again, this is something we've discussed before, mass extinctions, what causes mass extinction is ecosystem collapse. That's how you make a mass extinction. You pull the rug out from under an ecosystem. It's very possible that these ecosystems were already struggling. Yes. As we mentioned, Pangaea was very arid. There was high seasonality, and those can make for very stressful environments. As Will pointed out, there were fewer shallow ocean habitats to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you had less space for reef-like communities. And less space can mean less diversity. It can mean less differentiation between your spaces. This was a time where lots of new forms of life were sort of capitalizing on new conditions, but those new conditions were also making it really hard for a lot of other forms of life. And if if you have a fairly uniform status through across your your planet, then there's not a lot of different areas that can react differently. Yeah. Yes, well, it's like the way immunity works across a population. Yes. Is if your population is all susceptible to the same disease, one disease is going to wipe you out. Mm-hmm. It's why in coral growing programs we want to breed the corals ultimately instead of just fragmenting and effectively cloning them because now all the clones are going to be susceptible to all the same thing but yes different babies with different genetics are going to now be able to react differently and if your continent is one big dry continent and your ocean is one big deep ocean you don't have a lot of variety yeah and we talked about this probably in episode eight about conservation Mm mm-hmm Less diversity tends to be bad. It means it's for susceptible ecosystems. Well, you, you have uh, the way to think about them is as fail safes. If you only have a few, you know, cogs, then you can only have a few fail safes. But if you have a lot of things in your ecosystem, then there's a lot of different fail safes that they can hold up the food web without it collapsing if someone goes extinct. Indeed, indeed. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, the 20 million years leading up to this experienced two other mass extinctions. Yes, so they've been hit before they got knocked to the ground. Yeah, so even if those extinctions weren't crazy, and there's evidence that the end Guadalupian was actually kind of crazy, that's a hard, to, like, you're trying to recover. This only happened 10 million years ago. You're going to be diversity impoverished. Yes. So it's very likely, as is Always the case with mass extinctions, this was probably a combination of things. The Permian was a tough time. There were Siberian traps going off. There, There's all sorts of changes to the ocean chemistry, which are can exacerbate each other. So this was probably a buildup of factors that contributed to cutting the bottom out of ecosystems. All the cards were against the, the planet. And it just lined up the wrong way. Yeah. And if you can interrupt, as we've discussed before, if you can mess up reefs by making that they can't create coral skeletons and the, mm-hmm. the shelled animals like brachiopods can't make their shells, that's that's striking at the foundation of the community. That's devastating. If you mess up plants on land, that's the foundation of the ecosystem. So, yeah. So what, what you're easy saying to see that cascading effect. is if we were to notice that coral populations 
were declining, we should be concerned? I would absolutely. If something right. like that happened, I would be very worried. All right, that's that's something that's a good thing to be aware of. Make a note. Yes. Uh it's funny <coughs> that we 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 yeah. <laughs> him, him, him. Uh the Permian extinction is studied very often in the context of modern day climate change. Yes. Of like, hey, warming, rising CO2, lowered oxygen, toxicity, loss of reefs, loss of forests. This has happened before. There's a lot of parallels and it could lead to similar outcomes. And one of the factors that those researchers like to look at is the aftermath. Our extinction has happened. Our traps, volcanoes have gone off. Our chemicals have gone all out of whack. What was it like after the extinction? What was left? So the Permian comes to an end with ridiculously low diversity of organisms, major losses, toxic waters and overheated waters and all sorts of stuff. This brings the Paleozoic era to a close, and we pick up in the early Triassic. So what was it like immediately after the extinction? Everyone died. Well, yeah. Yeah. What was it like after the snap? We'll, we'll did... find out. We'll find out. Yeah, time. right. Well, what, <laughs> what is the first 15 minutes of Avengers 4 going to be like? As Will hinted at before, there is an incredible phenomenon known as disaster taxa. <laughs> the most famous disaster taxon a taxon remember is an organism or organismal group yeah it's just a grouping the most famous is lystrosaurus yeah lystrosaurus was a small herbivorous dicynodont one of those synapsids uh it's been found in antarctica and india and south africa small herbivore in the earliest triassic Lystrosaurus makes up approximately 90% of terrestrial vertebrate fossils. <laughs> They're the Triassic's tapirs of the gray fossil site. This animal was just all over the ecosystem. And the interpretation here is that there was no one else. Like, this is a genus that either through perseverance or luck ended up being one of the very few survivors. Yes. And just spread all over the place, became very, very abundant. Yeah, the upside to many, many things going extinct is that now those niches are left wide open and potentially your competitors and predators are gone. Yes, exactly. So the someone's got to be eating all the plants. Yep. <laughs> someone, someone has to do it. Why not Lystrosaurus? Another disaster group that you see here is that for the first few million years of the Triassic, remember those lycopsids that were being replaced by the gymnosperms? Well, they're back. <laughs> These spore-producing fern-like plants are extremely common. They dominate plant ecosystems in the very earliest Triassic because all of those competitors that had sort of started edging them out in the Permian have been wrecked by this extinction. Yeah. Uh, what was the one that you had mentioned before? The fish. That There's been lots of notes that the fish were extremely conservative. Yes, yes, yes. You get this just all across the, the earliest, right, the post-extinction world, very low diversity, mm -hmm. very homogenous ecosystems, often made up of opportunists, organisms that are best able to take advantage of any situation. The typical survivors of extinctions. They're not going to give up. Yep. It's if you once again, if you're not picky, you have more options. 
There's also, not only are there particular groups that seem to do really well, there are notable gaps in the record. These are fascinating. So in the marine ecosystems, uh, you have, uh, as I hinted at before, not only low diversity, but very few burrows. Mm-hmm. And instead, lots of microbial mats. Those microbes are taken over when, you know, when the, the eukaryotes are away. So you have this these gaps in trace fossils. There are very little, very few trace fossils in the, the early Triassic. There is a very famous coal gap oh. across the early Triassic for the first 10 million years or so of the Triassic period. There is no known coal. Weird. A reminder, coal forms from plant remains, peat forming plants. So you have, you know, swamps and forests and things create these sediments, these soils loaded with organic material. Give it a number of millions of years and you end up with coal. Well, there's no coal in the early Triassic. Oh, that's creepy. (laughs) And even, you know, through the middle Triassic, the coal beds we find are very thin. This is like in the horror movies where they they enter a place where the monster's been and someone's like, oh, my God, they're all dead. Where are the bodies? It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or it's like when the birds stop chirping when the yes. monster is approaching. Absolutely. Now, some have pointed out that there may be a geological bias here or that just simply the fact that there's not a lot of early Triassic sites. But many suspect that this is because there simply weren't vegetation dominated ecosystems to form coal that this was a reflecting a gap of forest and swamp and sort of richly planted environments there is also very similarly a reef gap yep in the early triassic there is little to no reef building in the shallow seas until the middle of the triassic once again this really goes back to that post-apocalyptic yeah, it's feel. ridiculous. This is the people climbing out of the rubble and trying to reform society among the wreckage. It's it's it, it like the Permian is very humbling when you look at it. The more you look at it, the more you're like, geez. Oh, we, yeah. We we almost were snuffed out. We came there's quite so close. M- yeah. There are so many groups that it had things just gone slightly differently would not be here. And that recovery took five to 10 million years. Now, some have suggested that the recovery was hindered by continuing bad conditions. So you may have had lingering acidity and lingering anoxia in in fresh and salt waters that may have limited that recovery. Yeah, the, the, the bad times that caused it didn't just suddenly turn off. Yes, but it took several million years before you start to see ecosystems you know, becoming healthy and more diverse again. I've seen it argued uh, that that arguably it took up to 100 million years to return to global family diversity that you saw in the Permian. To to be what we would be able to picture as a healthy Earth. Well, or or at least in the Permian, there were this number of families of life that we didn't get back up to that for an insanely long amount of time. That's ridiculous. Now, all of this sounds terrible, and it is. It was a rough time. Yeah. But as our story, this episode's story, draws to a close, the Paleozoic has been left behind, and this event, tragic though it was, set the stage for the Mesozoic. As the Mesozoic progressed, 
on land the synapsids ha are much reduced in their diversity and so the triassic by the end of it comes to be taken over by reptiles especially archosaurs Woo! which were able to rise in the absence of those dominant synapsids insect groups uh, recovering from the event are at this point overwhelmingly modern uh, these are now mostly modern groups of insects in the oceans reefs do return but they're not quite the same reefs we talked about this in episode 36 yep that in the paleozoic your reefs were dominated by those rugose and tabulate corals and sponges and brachiopods mm -hmm. in the mesozoic and ever since your reefs are made up of scleractinian corals the stony corals yeah sponges still and bivalves and we talked about the rudest bivalves that were uh, reef builders in parts of the mesozoic they're like trash can <laughs> bivalves yeah these really weird ones there is also evidence of dramatic reorganization of global ecosystems so there are some noticeable shifts uh partially ecosystem complexity just the complexity in terms of diversity of life, diversity of ecological roles is higher in the Mesozoic and Cenozoic than it was in the Paleozoic. Interesting. And one of the really interesting shifts that you see at the bottom of the ocean, which is where most extinction studies occur, or at least on the, the sea floor and shallow seas, in the Paleozoic, shallow ocean environments were dominated by sessile epifaunal suspension feeders. Sessile means things that don't move. Epifaunal means things that sit on the, the substrate on the seafloor. Suspension feeders is, you know, like filter feeding, pulling, yeah. pulling things out of the, the sea. Passive. Brachiopods. Sea lilies, right? The crinoids. These were very, very common. After the Paleozoic, as Mesozoic ecosystems sort of pick up again, you see much more diversity of mobile organisms, things that move around, and infaunal taxa which means living in the ground, in the substrate. So whereas the brachiopods and sea lilies on the surface staying in one place, these days we see a lot more crustaceans. Yeah. You see gastropods, right, snails and things. A lot of bivalves, clams, bury themselves. Yes. In the oceans. This is also uh, partially related to what's known as the Mesozoic Marine Revolution which was the evolution of a great diversity of predators that were evolved to eat hard-shelled things. Yeah. So this is, for me, one of the most fascinating changes is not only did we lose a lot of old groups and gain some new ones, not only did certain groups lose their dominance and other groups rose and, and the reefs are changing their structure, the actual ecological structure of our planet changed it's really cool it's that's one of the more interesting things to me about mass extinctions is they there's always a depressing note to them even though they're natural they they happen and they are not dooming the planet it just is part of the process even with that bit of depression it is also cool because they they can shake up the foundation to allow something new and different to be built upon it it's the same thing as without the in cretaceous mass extinction mammals may not have ever been able to become as diverse and dominant as they are now 
And without yeah. this, we may not have gotten the complex, or at least not the same kind of complex ecosystems that we're used to today, where there's these very, very nuanced and detailed and multi-layered food webs just about everywhere you look. Yup. Inc- incidentally, a very brief side note. One of our dear listeners uh, uh, not too long ago informed me that when I say yup, <laughs> it sounds to their ears like I'm being condescending. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and they said, I'm sure you don't mean it that way, but it sounds that way every time. And that's not what I mean. So yep. no. that's why I was put that out there. Thanks for the feedback, dear listener. I'm not going to say who it was. This is a person we both know. Yeah. My uh, my mom told me that one time because a lot a lot of time when we would go through like drive throughs I would say hello or thank you, be like hello or thank you, and I was like that sounds like you're mocking them. I was like that's not trying to. <laughs> but anyway, thus endeth the Permian period, and thus endeth the Paleozoic era, and thus endeth our discussion. Of the end Permian mass extinction, the great dying. It was pretty great. The great dying. Yeah, like, great for it, us. It was great for us. And I hope the episode <laughs> was great. The great episode. Great for Archosaurs. Great for the podcast. But before we wrap up this episode, one last thing. We have a question from a patron. Yes, we do. This question comes from Cheryl. And this question is actually in reference to episode 38, which was our grass episode, where we were joined by our friend Allie Baumgartner, mm-hmm. our, our, our friend the Lorax. <laughs> Cheryl's question is, so in the episode, we discussed that uh, global climates became cooler and drier as you went from the Paleogene into the Neogene. And Cheryl's question is... Ali stated that much of the evidence for the changing global climate, cooler and drier, comes from foraminiferous studies of the sea floor. She says, it's been a long time since my intro to botany and micropaleo courses, but how do marine forams indicate aridity levels? I know forams are temperature sensitive, but if they're in the ocean, how do they indicate arid or dry climates? How are they connecting to the, the dry land itself? Yes, this is a... Wonderful question that I do not know the answer to. Will, do you know the answer to this question? I, I No, I don't. I mean, I, I could make guesses, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be yeah. right. Hey, Allie. What? Do you know the answer to this question? I do. Well, that's so, brilliant. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. I'll be your Lorax again. <laughs> so Cheryl's right. Because... Um, so forams are sensitive to temperature, they're much less sensitive to precipitation because if you think about it, you're talking about these tiny little uh, organisms in a really big ocean. So in general, they're not that great at giving you uh, paleo precipitation, but you can combine them with other data. So you can get an idea of paleo CO2 levels in the atmosphere, and if you can couple that with temperature, you can get a pretty good idea of precipitation. In addition, these uh, the ocean cores that have these foraminifera also will give you a pretty good idea of the amount of continental weathering 
So when you have high CO2 and high temperature, you in general have higher precipitation and higher weathering. When you have lower CO2 and lower temperature and lower weathering, you tend to also have lower precipitation. So it's not a direct measure of it, but you can use them coupled with other things. However, you can use um, foraminifera to study monsoon which is really interesting. So in general, if you have uh, monsoon conditions, they're going to uh, affect the productivity of uh, foraminifera in a smaller region. So you can do this kind of study in um, uh, like the Indian Ocean or um, like the Gulf Coast uh, in the um, Arab Peninsula. So it's a smaller environment over a smaller time scale. You actually can get an idea of local monsoon records. So globally, they're not very good at telling you precipitation, but if you couple it with other things, or if you're using it in a smaller region, you can use them to determine uh, paleo precipitation. Cool. Very nice. And I assume you're telling, so carbon dioxide levels, the atmosphere affects the ocean. Yes. So you can read that straight from the ocean. Yeah. And then does weathering and erosion, is that in the sediment, in, in the kind of sediment you're collecting? So... If you have a lot, if you have higher temperatures and higher CO2, um, and and uh, you're going to have higher weathering of continental sediments, continental sediments, what they weather, end up to going into the rivers. Rivers mm -hmm. go to the ocean. And so the, that continental weathering is eventually going to go into the ocean and is going to, so we're going to be able to pick that up there. You actually can't get a you can't always sometimes you can't always get a good idea of what's going on with weathering on the land you have to couple it with what you're seeing on the land and what you're seeing in the ocean and if you got glaciers cool. involved <laughs> oh crazy. boy well yeah it gets crazy yeah. when you add glaciers <laughs> that's Allie, cool. that's great yeah thanks very much i'm yes. glad i could be here to be your lorax <laughs> Cheryl, thank you for your question. And also, I just realized Cheryl is also the person who requested this episode topic. So thank you also for requesting yes. the subject. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode. We hope you had fun, even as we talked about just oodles of death. <laughs> as always, we release new episodes every fortnight. So keep an eye out for episode 46 coming up in the near future. Keep an eye out for all of our extra bonus stuff. We're doing our bonus series through October. We're still doing a bunch of those. We're still, for now, we are. <laughs> and as always, there will be a blog post that goes along with this. So check that out for more info and more photos to go along with our discussion. And that's it for now. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Allie, for joining us here at the end. I'm happy Thank to be you. here. <laughs> and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.